Aloha! This is Dr. Tiki, and I'm listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. I'm glad to hear that you are too. We will begin in mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. There we go. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to TalkCast 266, and this week's edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night in the Fortress of Solitude in Area 51. I am the Dome Chief Pontificator. Joining the TalkCast tonight, the gang four in the Revered Dime Vortex, our technical omnivore. She runs everything behind the scenes and in front of the scenes, and she just kind of enjoys running stuff, our own girl genius, Kriana. And I run circles around everyone else. At the moment, I don't know if she'll be joining us tonight or not, but the, from her not. personal calm space and dank, she's not. She's I had not. this great intro for her. But in eh, any case, say it anyway. From a galaxy not as far away as you might think, the lady in chainmail who's trolling ABC executives on Twitter, around season, red lipstick and all, our own Sir Sarah Lady Knight. I heard literally none of that. <laughs> I, I kind of heard my name at the end, but literally none of that. <laughs> that seems to be the theme of tonight, is that noise right there. Hey, we're, we're looking at top last week, so. <laughs> oh, dear God. This is going... <laughs> So don't just don't just cut out in the middle of saying this is going horribly, horribly, horribly. This is going. It is going, which is better than what was happening earlier. Mostly. (laughs) Not really. That's what she said. Zombrarian just chimes in. Have we started? Hmm. Okay, well, that was almost a whole sentence dumb. Good job. <laughs> so I while know. he is off waxing his turtles or whatever it is that he does, we're going to talk about the fact that fucking Leonard Nimoy died. I don't... I know. I can't. I can't even. I can't even. I, it's not It's not allowed. I, I don't believe I it. I literally can't even. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I, it's not It's not real, right? Like, this is a practical joke, right? No, right, yeah, totally. Like a really mean... A super mean one. Uh, 
I'm the only one who's going to show up on this recording. It's like I'm talking to ghosts. The ghost of Sir Sarah. No, really, the ghost of Sir Sarah. She dropped off the call. I'm back. For the fourth time. Still crying about <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. We're still crying. Everyone's crying. No one is happy. Fuck the world. That's all I have to say. Is Leonard Nimoy? It's not fair. Who do I talk to about this? Yes, I would like to lodge a formal complaint as well. Yeah, I think we should do that. Who do we mm -hmm. do that to? Haley Atwell, I believe. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> See, she why, power. <laughs> why is Haley Atwell going to be able to do anything? She's not, but it, at least we'll it. be cheered up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll even get hugs. Probably. Would you like a hug from Haley Atwell? Because I know that I would. Okay, I'd like all I'll the hugs. That. That, yeah, that kind of makes you know, sense. Other things. What? No. Yes. Yes. Don't uh, even. Yes. We're gonna yes. try. We're gonna try and get through this tonight, aren't we? We're gonna try and get through. Get like... to Haley Atwell. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> what? What were you talking about? This for Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> you get the first hug. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and we just keep losing what's people. What's going on? Left and right. Where am I? So last thing, time I heard, Dome was going left and he wanted you to go right. I think you may be trying to catch some sort of imaginary football. Hmm. But I don't really know. But I do know that our guest has dropped off the line in the meantime. So how about I try to get him back? That would always be a good idea. All right, let's do it. Hello. Hi, Jim. I swear we're going to keep trying to get it right. All right, so before this internet connection kicks off again, why don't you introduce our guest, Dome? Our guest tonight is a guy who's had a lot of experience working with puppets and muppets, Jim Martin, who has worked in the Henson Creature Shop, has worked on the Children's Television Workshop, and the Great Space Coaster. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Or lack thereof, I, as it may be. I, I'm saying tonight, I don't know what the hell we're going to do, but we're definitely getting to you tonight. Jim, we, we met you about a year ago, uh, and... We ended up talking to a piece of felt called Gary Gnu for a while, actually. So how did you get involved working with puppets? Oh, well, uh, getting involved with puppets was, I think, everything in my generation. When you were in second grade, you had to make a puppet. And uh, so I was a little paper man. And your mom helped just sew the costume together and made a little puppet. And I couldn't draw. And so I always wanted to be a cartoonist. And I, because I couldn't draw, I suddenly decided that uh, there's all kinds of different cartoonists. There's animators who do, you know, cartoons, like uh, in my generation, Bugs Bunny. And 
Woody Woodpecker, Mickey Mouse, and then there's stop animation animators like Ray Harryhausen, and uh, there was Howdy Doody and Mr. Rogers, and they were puppeteers. And I thought, well, if I can't be a cartoonist and an animator or a stop animator, and nowadays there's computer-generated animators, I would be an immediate animator. And everybody would say to me, well, what, what is an immediate, immediate animator? Well, an immediate animator is a puppeteer, someone who takes something, something that has no life to it and immediately gives it, infuses life into that character. So it was in second grade um, that I decided, okay, if I can't draw, I'm going to learn how to do puppets, make puppets come, make puppets come alive. So that's where it all started. And, and from there, you ended up doing your own stuff uh, with uh, the Pittsburgh Puppet Theater and that kind of stuff. How do, how do you make that from second grade sock puppets to that? Well, um, it's like anybody in life, you have, you have interests and those interests come and go. And, you know, as I went through school, I, I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be a director, I wanted to be a makeup artist, um, and puppets were always there for me. And I remember when I got into college, um, I wanted to be a makeup artist. One of, one of my interests was acting, directing, and makeup. And because there was no school at the time that was interested in makeup, um, I actually got some tuition fees way so that I do make for, for different uh, productions. And there was one, I love children's theater, and there was only one paying job in the children's theater, and that was a clown. And this clown character had been the logo of the, the uh, children's theater forever. And I would get there real early in the morning on Saturday and Sunday and make up everybody for whatever, Jack and the Beanstalk or Little Red Riding Hood or whatever. And uh, the person at the time that was performing the clown, they would come in, you know, because we were college students from Friday night and be just like, oh, i got to do this again and put on makeup. And they'd go out and whip the, whip the audience into a frenzy, screaming and yelling and jumping all over the stage. And uh, it got to the point where, you know, it was like, whoa. It would take till Act Two to calm the kids down because this clown would just, you know, go out there and be crazy and wild. And I and I always looked at that as I was making up, you know, Red Riding Hood or the Big Bad Wolf or whatever. And I thought, what, what is the purpose of this clown? What's, what's, why? Why do they have this? And so one day the person who was uh, doing the clown didn't show up. I guess they had a too good of a Friday night. And they didn't show up Saturday morning, so I made everybody up, and I put the costume on myself. And I went out, and having grown up in Pittsburgh and being a Mr. Rogers neighborhood uh, child, I uh, went out with the clown, and kids were yelling and screaming and all of that. And I sat down on the edge of the stage, and I just started talking to them in a very normal, friendly voice, but quiet. And all of a sudden, everybody was really quiet. It's like, hey, what's this clown saying? What's, what's he talking about? And so it was at that kind of moment that I decided that the clown lives in the theater, and his job is to tell the kids about the show and to kind of give them a heads up what to watch for, who the characters are, sort of be that, um, 
not necessarily the storyteller, but just kind of give them a taste and, and look for this kind of thing. And at the same time, one of my best friends in college, Randall Fellowspot, and he and I, unbeknownst to both of us, started rediscovering vaudeville. So I would be sitting there, standing there, and just talking to the kids, and suddenly the follow spot would just start drifting off of me. And that would, of course, make the kids <laughs> laugh. And I would just take a half a step to the right or to the left, back into the spot, and I'd keep talking, and then all of a sudden the follow spot would start going away again. And so we would we did this like for a couple of weekends, and then we would sit at lunch and talk about, you know, what can we do this week? What can we do this week? And the spot would just get smaller and smaller and smaller on my face till it only illuminated my nose. And then I would take my fingers and start stretching and pulling on the follow spot to open it up to reveal my face and then my body. And the follow spot became another character. And we found that we could... You know, though this had been done for a hundred years, we didn't know this. None of our teachers had taught us anything about vaudeville, and, and, and of course, the kids didn't know it either. Of course not. This was all new for all of us. We were all kids. <laughs> we were all kids, and we were all discovering, you know, theater and theater in one of its simplest forms. You know, just talking and listening, and then having that antagonist, the uh, the follow spot. So that that became a running thing for for a number of months during the children's shows, and um, it's a long story. I can't. Even, I don't know how to shorten it. But I also no, had go on. This puppets. is cool. I also had some puppets that I had made, and then at one point, as we as we do when we're we're young, you know, you can you invent something, but you forget the audience is seeing for the first time every week but we were doing the same thing every week, so we would just keep every show coming up with new material, which we didn't have to. And then it got to the point where I, the clown, would exit, and then a puppet would come through the curtain looking clown. And then one, one weekend, the stage manager said, you know, when you're done with your own show, Jim, we'd like to start Mystery at the Fort, <laughs> the show that we were, we were talking about. So... So in Pittsburgh, there was a, a local children's show host. He was on early in the morning. He would show Popeye cartoons, and his name was Captain Jim. And Captain Jim um, had had this little fake set that was like a riverboat because Pittsburgh has three rivers. And the idea was he was sailing up and down the rivers of Pittsburgh and showing cartoons to the kids and telling the kids about Pittsburgh and what was going on. And the and the children's theater had an agreement with him that he would come to the first, to the opening of each new show, each new uh, production, and that um, he would talk about it, like, you know, for a few days leading up to his appearance, and he'd sign autographs, and he was a really great gentleman, and um, his name was Ted, Ted Ekman, and um, Ted would come to the theater, and I would make a big deal out of him as, as the clown, and he would talk, and they they eventually said they and he and his producer said we'd like the clown to come onto the TV show to tell about the show because he knows a lot more than the press releases are giving us and it's kind of fun to have this character come you know on the show and talk about the new shows at the Pittsburgh Playhouse. So I did that for a while and then they saw the puppets and they said well why don't you bring your puppets on the Captain Jim show and started out was doing the show maybe once a week every week turned into doing the show like three and four times a week and I would be getting up early 
the show was on like at seven o'clock in the morning, and I would get up, um, get to the, the the TV studio, put my clown makeup, do the show, and then run to my first class in college with still a big red outline on my face that I couldn't scrub off uh, from the clown makeup, <laughs> and. And I, you know, I don't, I didn't realize till years later what a wonderful, wonderful opportunity I had been given. And it was just so magical. I mean, think about it, getting up early and you're retired and you're exhausted and you go to the TV station. This is, and this is, you know, when there was only three networks and PBS and, and that was it. No cable, you know, it was, you got the rabbit ears and you dialed this in. I'm talking, you know, like in the six, in the late sixties, early seventies. And um, I would do the show. And one day they said to they, the director and Captain Jim Ted, said to me, you know, after the show's over, we got to talk to you. I was young. I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was going to be bad, but I didn't think, you know, it was okay, fine, fine, fine. So they take me into the office. And meanwhile, you know, the clock is running. I got to get my, my little VW bug and drive, you know, into town to go to, go to the school, go to college. And there's something, and oh, geez, I hope this doesn't take long. What's, what's going on? What's going on? And they said, you know, you've been on this show for so long, and it's getting to the point now where uh, the union is, is getting on us because, you know, I wasn't paid to do this. I was there basically just every, every time promoting the Pittsburgh Playhouse, but I was doing all kinds of other stuff on the show with the puppets and that. And they said, you know, so we're uh, we're really sorry, Jim, but you know the union's getting on us, and uh, so I want to thank you for everything you've done, and just let you know that um, next week we're going to have to start paying you. <laughs> like, what a terrible what? thing! Oh, that's terrible. What you have to get and, paid? Yeah, it was crazy, and so I was like, "What? Is, what are you being paid?" What's pay? Because uh, I, as a kid, worked at the five and ten. You know, I was swept the floors and cleaned the toilets at the five and ten to make money for, for streetcar fare for the for school. And um, so I went and I joined the union, paid my money, joined AFTRA, which is the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. And I guess it was 1972, 71 or something that I joined AFTRA. And I did a show, and still going to college, doing the Captain Jim show. Um, unfortunately, Ted had a heart attack, and rather than take off, take take the show off, I continued the show, uh, being a host while he was out sailing the seven seas, and then he came back on the show, and. Just at that time, then, was more the advent of the early morning news shows like the Today Show and stuff like that. So, like all the shows of the 50s and 60s, it just kind of went away. But it was an amazing, amazing opportunity, and that was my first real introduction to uh, puppetry. And what a great training ground that is for you. Yeah, it was. It was because all just kind of playing and figuring it out, and it was one of those things. What are we going to talk about today? What's going on? Well, the circus is in town. They're going to bring you know this elephant into the theater, into the studio, and you know we got an elephant on the boat, kind of thing, and just crazy stuff, you know, or what's going to be at the mall, or you know, it's just crazy fun things. And of course, still talking about the Pittsburgh House and what's going to go on 
show. And I, so, um, so I went to college and continued my college and wanted to become a makeup artist. And I came from a very poor family um, and saved up my money and took a bus and came to New York uh, to have a meeting with the business manager for the makeup union. And I had my little portfolio and Polaroids and things like that because everything in those days was Polaroids and 30 little 35 millimeter prints of my makeup. There was nothing like face-off or whatever in those days, no magazines or anything, except like famous monsters of Filmland, if anybody remembers that. Um, Absolutely, too. Yeah, yeah. So I would sit and copy those and write letters to Forty Ackerman and send stories of my makeup. You know, I don't know what I expected, but anyway, I got to New York and met with the uh, with the makeup head, and he just was a typical uh, cigar smoking, feet up on a desk kind of guy. And he said to me, you know, well, before we can consider you. You have to be a New York resident. You have to live here for so many years. Then, then after that, we'll consider giving you an application. And it just seemed like, as, as this guy was talking, it would take the rest of my life to possibly do this. So I just, you know, packed up and went back to Pittsburgh from, I guess, the next day on the bus and just thought this is never going to happen for me. And then I went um, to our parks department and proposed a puppet theater, and I called it the Pittsburgh Puppet Theater. And uh, during the summer months, I would tour all the different parks and do live shows. And then in the fall and winter months, I would teach people how to make puppets in our senior centers and our rec centers and things like that. And that was, um, that was something I did for almost eight years. And during that time, um, Sesame Street you know, just came on, and they, they, the cast of the human cast of Sesame Street was going to come to a to a water festival in in Pittsburgh, and they had built a barge for them, and the Pittsburgh Youth Symphony was going to play, and all the human actors and Big Bird was going to be there. And that that day, or the day before, Pittsburgh had such bad weather that things were pulled out of their moorings and boots, you know, and all the way down the Ohio River back into Ohio, and it was just a big disaster, and um, the whole thing was called off, but they, but they announced on the radio, because of the cast was still in Pittsburgh, that they were going to have um, the show still, but not on the, on, the, um, on the dock, which was now, I guess, we're down the Mississippi, but they would have it, you know, at our Civic Center, so I went there, and there was maybe 100 people that showed up because the rain, it was torrential downpours. And we all sat on the floor of, of this arena and, and watched him perform. And after the show was over, I saw Carol Spinney, and I, I knew who he, who he was from pictures that I had seen. I went up and introduced myself, and he gave me the old, you know, well, kid, if you ever get to New York, my phone number for my dressing room and I'd love to show you around Sesame Street and that sort of was the start of it. Oh um, God. How cool years was later, that? Yeah, a couple years later I worked for some people doing some commercials in New York and then um, the Great Space Coaster came and I auditioned for it and got the job performing on it and had to leave the, the Parks Department job and then just been freelancing and doing shows and, and had a very blessed life doing different So, Jim, 
let's yep. let's talk a little bit about the Great Space Coaster because that was for you uh, your first national show, I think, wasn't it? It was the best times. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. I mean, I had done I had done some national commercials. Um, I had you know done little little bits of these things there but to to get really a character on a tv show that was on every day across the united states that was pretty amazing but i didn't i didn't think at that time i didn't think it was it was like just doing the captain jim show you know just going out there getting doing <laughs> doing the job it was not like like oh my god look what we're doing because you're so into doing it you're so busy doing it that you don't have time to um, to sit back and think, you know, wow, this is this is amazing, you know. Now, when you were doing the Great Space Coaster, mm-hmm. you did you invent your own puppets? Did you bring your puppets and characters no. into the show? No, um, Griffin Bacall, which was an advertising agency. Uh, Griffin Bacall was an advertising agency, and their big clients were Hasbro and Kellogg. And they also worked with Claster TV, and Claster TV produced re, uh, Robber Room. And they had done all of these really incredible commercials, you know, for G.I. Joe and Transformers and Gem and My Little Pony. And they were also doing the animated series for them. And uh, Joe Bacall and Tom Griffin... Griffin Bacall wanted to start their own little side company called Sunbow Productions, and they wanted to make this show called The Great Space Coaster. And they got Hasbro and Kellogg to put in money so that they could have their own creativity too. You know, so that they, you know, because they're creating things for other people and working within their, you know, confined confinement, and they wanted to uh, to come up with their own show. So, so no, I did not. I, I came to audition. They told me it was like any kind of a show. Here's what the character is. I actually don't think when I auditioned, I even saw the puppet. I didn't even see a sketch or a drawing. I was just told that this character was going to be the newsman, and um, they wanted some kind of very serious, firm voice, and that that Gary Gnu was going to be the... Um, sort of the the older character on the show. Well, you ended up with this character. You ended up with this character with Gary being kind of the the person who kind of holds that whole show together and narrates between places and kind of brought the whole Great Space Coaster together. So that was a, a cool character to start with. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, when we made when we made the show, I mean, everybody was in love with Gorilla Gorilla, and, and that was the that was the big character. Gary was just sort of um, there, and I remember when when the first because there was a <clears throat> excuse me there was a number of different Gary Gnu puppets made. The first Gary had a very small mouth, and and what happens is you know like like any developing any character as an actor or whatever, except with a puppet, you're limited to, okay, here's the cat, here's the visual. Now you, you have to put things to it and you have to, you know, figure out how you're going to perform. And Gary had a very small, very tight mouth. And at the time, Walter Cronkite, I don't know if you remember him, he was the big, 
newscaster for CBS. He was the the word in, in news. And so we decided because he had this very small mouth and Walter Cronkite had a very uh, a tight, tight kind of voice. He was, oh, this is Walter Cronkite. So he would talk like that. So Gary initially was, hello there, this is Gary Gnu, and the No Gnu's is Good Gnu's show. And it was, it was sort of a bad imitation of, of Walter Cronkite. And then I remember um, I was trying to, because we had no rehearsal time, you know, we just didn't go in and do it, because it was a very small budget show, and, you know, we just did it. And Gary would be... <laughs> Well, hello there. This is Gary Canoe, and, and Nixon was president at the time. And for some reason, the director of the show had it in his head that I was doing Nixon. Oh God, no! <laughs> and so he would he would come over the PA, you know, would be would be taping, and then he'd stop and say, uh, you know, it, it sounds too much like Nixon. And I'd be like, wait a minute, I don't know what you're talking about, Nixon. I'm just, well, what what would like me to do? This is this is Gary Gnu. You know. So we would tape a little bit, and then it come back, and be like, oh no, it's too much like Nixon, too much like Nixon. So I remember one day, it just got to me, <laughs> and so I was like, well, hello there, this is Gary Gnu, and no Gnu, and and it came over, you know, look, it is. It's like Nixon again. It's like Nixon again. And I went, what the hell do you want from me? And they were like, that's it. That's what we want. We want that. <laughs> meanwhile, you know, my adrenaline was probably really pumping. So I'm very tired of this. I've had it. I'm out of here. This is Gary Gnu signing off. Have a good night. And they were like, this is brilliant. This is, we love this. We love this. Why haven't you done this before? But the, the mouth of the puppet was so tiny. It just didn't look good with that kind of energy coming from this little tiny mouth and so within you know a short time they had built a new puppet and we re-recorded the stuff we sort of reshot most of the stuff with the gary that most people know you know because gary had, so jim at one how, time, long, they, how, how long did great space coaster run it ran from like i think 1981 through around 85 86 because after it ran on the uh, you, I think it was UHF channels because it was the high-end numbers. Um, then it went to um, USA Network, which was a new cable company. Uh, I mean, keep in mind when the Great Space Coaster was being made in 1984, that's, that was the birth of MTV. Cable was just coming out strong. So we were just right on the, the beginnings of beginnings of that cable wave and at the same time the death of UHF VHF so let's put Great Space Coaster away for a second because we're going to come back to it but when that ended did Carol Spooney get the phone call from you Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I talked to Carol Spinney. You know, oh, oh, I, sh I, sh I never even mentioned this. I'm sorry, because so I, I need to remember something. You know, I had gone up to Carol. I had gone to New York. This was before the Great Space Coaster happened. And um, Kermit Love, who designed Big Bird and the Snuffleupagus, 
was also making the puppets for the Great Space Coaster. And he said he had met me, and he said, you know, come to New York for this audition. So that's, it was because of Carol Spinney and, and uh, Kermit Love that I got the audition for the Great Space Coaster. I'm sorry, I didn't explain that. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. So, so my yeah, so, so so now the coaster is done, and is that your entree into working with Children's Television Workshop and Sesame Street? Well, when we were doing the Great Space Coaster, we did it in New York, and so we knew. You know, I knew Kermit, I I knew Carol, and I was always hanging out at Sesame. Street. Street. I was always, you know, going to the Muppet workshops and things like that. So, um, you know, I didn't, though they may have seen the Great Space Coaster as competition, I was just like, wow, I'm here in New York, I'm working on a show, and can I come and, you know, hang out on your big, big, your big TV show, you know, Sesame Street. And then I got to audition for Sesame Street and, um, and got a job there. So what was it like the first time? Because for me, Sesame Street was kind of the be-all and and, and end-all because of the incredible concept that they were working with. Uh, And it's always fascinated me to talk to people who were in it during its formation and, and throughout its life, which continues to this day. What was it like for you working there? Well, I got there um, when the majority of the original people were still there on the show. And that was amazing. It was just amazing to meet all of your, all of the original people to sit down with Will Lee, who's Mr. Hooper, and just hang out and talk to him. And to We're not to allowed to talk meet. about him. It is still too soon. Who? Mr. Hooper. We can't talk about him. It's still too soon. Oh. There are some people who never talk got about past Mr. that day. <laughs> oh, you've got to talk about him. He was such a wonderful man. To not talk about him is to him a disservice. You know, we we should we should honor the actors that came before us because these people were so uh, so many of the original Sesame Street people came from vaudeville, came from the very beginnings of television, came from you know when TV was just a little spark of Fox. I mean, that was so. They had so many stories and so many wonderful energy, so much wonderful energy, and were so loving and giving. They, they, they at that point were in their sixties and seventies and knew what they had helped birth, and they were just so joyous to see the new wave of people coming to them and saying, you know, can you tell me about it? Can you tell me what you did? How did you make that? Start? I want to be part of it. Yeah. Oh man. No. Never. 
celebrate them, celebrate their lives, celebrate who they were, how they touched you as a child. It's like Mr. Rogers, you know, I, I, when I was in college again, because it was Pittsburgh and they shot Mr. Rogers in Pittsburgh, it was such a joy to go there to the studio and to meet Fred. And I knew Fred when I wanted to be a makeup man. And so I would be called in every so often to do some makeup on Mr. Rogers neighborhood, or if they would have big crowd scenes and they needed an extra puppeteer and to and to just you know be in the same room and watch and breathe that air that they're you know that they're breathing and see how making their shows was phenomenal. So I, I I remember talking to Carol Spinney about how when the children's television workshop first began, it was all cramped and and really a small little set that eventually over time grew and became this this kind of large. Sesame Street. What was it like for you coming in and seeing this this magical place? Well, I I actually got to go to the very first studio Sesame Street was in, which was the 81st Street uh, right. Theater. So the 81st Street Theater was a very tiny, tiny, you know, hole in the wall. It was a, it was a basically a, a movie theater that they had you know turned into a broadcast, you know, a, a television facility. And I think, I think that cramness, I think the kindness of it um, add, added to the intimacy of the show. You know, it, it just, it translated my, my own personal feeling after being there for so long that the, really the star of the show is the set. <laughs> it, it, nice. it, is, it is Sesame Street. It is the it is the environment. I mean, most most shows the environment is just the background that the performers perform in front of. But Sesame Street, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten who designed the original set, but Sesame Street was designed so incredibly clever. If you if you start with the brownstone, you know, one two three Sesame Street, it's it's basically a theater set. You know, it's what they bastardized for Avenue Q. It's the front of a building and then the Oscars hand and the doors and you go around the corner and there's a big bird's nest. But that's you perform in front of that, very theatrical. And then if you go to go to your left into the into the um, into the play yard and then Hoopers Hoopers is, is the is a movie set. Hoopers comes all apart. That whole that whole building, the walls come apart, so you can get cameras inside. You know, you can shoot from the outside of the building. You can put cameras inside of the building. Whereas one, two, three, you go up the steps, and then you have to cut to a swing set, which is then whosoever apartment that you're in. So I just thought, you know, hey, this is like combining everything that's New York, everything that's New York as far as entertainment, theater, television, film, all in the one set. And initially, you know, when I got there, initially the set was lived in. You know, there was leaves on the ground, and there'd be some trash every so often, just kind of scattered around. And it had a real a lived-in feeling. It, they worked really hard to make it feel like it was real, as opposed to a set. How many years were you affiliated with Sesame Street, with the Children's Television Workshop? You know, I never really sat down and figured out, tried to figure out when I first got a job. You know, when I first had my my first year be in this skit kind of thing um it was pretty much after space coasters ended 
which would have been like in the 80s, late 80s. Yeah. So, uh, 20 some years. Wow. That, that's an know. incredible <laughs> run for you. Yeah. And I mean, not only that, you affiliate with a whole bunch of other uh, Henson slash Disney slash cool stuff like Elmo's World, Bear in the Big Blue House. Uh, oh, what was the other one? Uh, Eureka's Castle for Nickelodeon. Right. I love that show. Wasn't that a wonderful show? Oh, my God. Those, yeah, absolutely. Now, the same, the same guys that built the puppets for the Great Space Coaster with Kermit Love, they called themselves the... the well, Kermit Love had a studio called the Great Jones Studio, which was on Great Jones Street in New York. And there were four guys um, that worked for, for Kermit. And then eventually those guys went off and started to redesign studios. And it was Jim Kruba, John Orberg, Matt Stoudard, Bob Marty, and Julie Wiggs, I think. Um, so those guys and, and girl started three design studio, and they built the puppets for Eureka's Castle. Yeah, and I love those char- those characters. I mean, wasn't what Magellan is is amazing? And oh my God, it was, they were just great individual characters, mm-hmm. and it was it was so much fun to watch. So you had this wonderful career playing all these characters, uh, designing puppets, working with great other puppeteers. And then one day it occurred to you that there was the show that you had been on. That a generation growing up today had never heard of. that, That never occurred to me. Going back to what I said earlier about wanting to be a cartoonist, there was in Pittsburgh a couple of years back, this fellow uh, started what he called the Toonzeum, and the animation cartoon museum. The Toonzeum is in Pittsburgh, and it celebrates cartooning in all of its forms, be it political cartoons or comic books or newspapers or films or whatever. And he had found me and said, hey, would you and your wife, Crystal, like to be on the board of the Toonzeum? And so we, you know, helped them get launch the Toonzeum and get it up and running. And it's doing its own thing now. And one day he said to me, he said, hey, who owns the Great Space Coaster? You know, you were on that show. And it was not a big deal to me. I said, I don't, I don't know whatever happened to it, you know. Um, so he, unbeknownst to me, he and my wife, Crystal, um, started searching on the Internet. And they found that Griffin Bacall had had retired, the company had retired, and um, they sold all of their holdings to Sony. Sony sold all of their of the Griffin Bacall catalog internally to Sony Wonder, and then Sony Wonder, when that went away, sold everything to a German company called TV Loonland. And the Teeny Loonland had really bought all of the Griffin Bacall catalog. And then <laughs> they, they, came, they came to me and told me all of this. And they said, you know, you should buy it, Gary. You should buy it. You have it. So we got found a lawyer, and we found a lawyer who spoke German. And they, TV Loonland said, well, we're not interested in selling a character. That's pretty absurd. But we'll sell you the show. Because what happened was um, 
years before that, uh, Hasbro decided to do live-action movies, G.I. Joe, Transformers. And somebody, I guess, at Hasbro said, you know, it'd be really great if we re-released these cartoons before the live-action film came out, you know, make a little money and get awareness sure. of all that about the show, right? Makes sense. Where are the shows? Well, I don't know. Let's find out. TV, Loonland owns them? Hey, we got to buy them back. We got to buy our own shows back. So he bought everything back from, from TV Loonland, except the Great Space Coaster and a few other smaller productions that Griffin McCall did. So TV Loonland was like, okay, so we negotiated with them, and uh, we bought the rights to the Great Space Coaster. <laughs> so this is a 30-year-old show that was recorded on two-inch reel-to-reel tape, and uh, it's falling apart. And we're trying to save it by digitizing the episodes. So what are you going to do once you digitize the episodes? That's a really good question. Uh, Thanks. I I, got to do that. (laughs) We don't don't have a good answer for it. Because there's so much music on the Great Space Coaster, um, we've had a couple of companies, you know, that release, you know, um, classic TV and things like that come to us. But the problem is they want us to handle all of the residuals and royalties and all the legal end of it. They'll buy the show from us, but we have to make sure that all the union things are taken care of. And right now, it's just a few people doing this and we're all, you know, doing it with no income. And so there's no money for you know, the lawyers that we've had to had to hire and pay for and that, but to go into that not knowing, you know, what kind of sales we would get from the releasing the shows on DVD, uh, we just we just aren't there yet. So what we're doing is, you know, we're just digitizing it to save the shows and then hopefully in some future either we'll redesign the show and bring it back as a new show because I know a lot of like Amazon and Hulu and Netflix, that kind of thing. They're looking for product. Um, you know, I, I don't know yet. We still have not had a real clear feeling of what we could do because as soon as we make money on the show, there are people that were on the show then that will come after us wanting their cut. Even if it's 11 cents, they're still going to want their cut. <laughs> and they can get the 11 cents. I have no problem with that, and I don't think you do either. <laughs> No, not not at all. But but you know, we we when I say we, Crystal and I, invested an extremely you know a big amount of time on this, and you know legal fees, and of course the buying the show and all of that. So you know we've put a lot of money into this, and we just you know we don't know what we're doing with it yet. This this was this was not something that we thought out. We just thought we just found out the show was still out there you know, and saw what kind of shape it was in, and who knows? Who knows what will happen? So if people people want to get involved with help... Yeah. So, So we have a Facebook page. There's a lot of fan sites for the Great Space Coaster on Facebook. Ours is the official one. We try those things maybe once a week. Not a lot. We don't try to drive people crazy with things. Only, only stuff directly related to the show. Um, if you look at the Great Space Coast on Facebook, we have a little picture on our heading, which is the drum 
from the Great Space Coaster that Danny played, and it's just a head to the drum head. It says the Great Space Coaster. And then there's a picture of a very young Jim Martin and Gary Gnu, which is the, the horizontal picture. So that's how you know that it's the official Great Space Coaster page. And then we have a... Think... We, I'm sorry? No, no, go ahead. And then, and then we also have like a Twitter account for the Great Space Coaster, and we have a website which used to be called tgscoaster.com, and now um, our friend Scott, who runs it for us, he's in Canada, Scott just relaunched it on Monday, and now it is called thegreatspacecoaster.tv. So that's our, that's our official website, which has you know merchandising that was out in the 80s and, you know, little bios on all the performers, you know, we're trying to fill it with as much stuff as we can find. So it's the Great Space Coaster TV. Kind of fitting. We're back on TV. <laughs> Absolutely. And on it's Vimeo, we have a couple really, episodes on Vimeo. It's really important to preserve some of this stuff because it's very easy for it to get lost forever and it's really cool that you've done what you've done to make that happen well it's sort of a little time capsule of the 80s um we've had we had so many interesting guest stars on the great space coaster that were celebrities in the 80s uh, and we've had some good, good experiences. It, it, it runs us about $350 an hour to digitize the, the shows. And Marvin Hamlish, who's the composer and, and uh, songwriter of so many wonderful shows, Marvin was a guest star on The Great Space Coaster. And PBS did a series on American Masters on Marvin Hamlish, and they wanted a clip. So they, they gave us money to digitize the clip. Um, the show, rather, so we, we got some some support. And then NFL last year did a documentary on Joe Green, Green, and NFL Films came along and helped us a lot by helping, you know, because they have digitizing abilities within, within the company. And so they're digitizing some episodes for us, too. So, um, so we've gotten some help that way, too, some corporate sponsorship, if you will. That's amazing. Kind of, Jim, you know, kind of, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It's just kind of an interesting story about somebody who worked on something when they were, you know, 30. Now they're in their 60s and trying to save the show and um, get it, you know, bring it back. And so much what we did in the 80s on the Great Space Coaster because it was, it was the beginnings of music videos. It was the beginnings of MTV. Gary Noon was doing what people do now on YouTube, you know. So we, we were doing things before it became real popular and, uh, and, and now it's everywhere, you know. All this stuff is every, all this technology is everywhere. Remember Roy on the show had that little movie projector that he would show Gorilla and Knock Knock, little animated cartoons that was, you know, he'd put it in a little disc and it would play, you know. There was no laser disc or, or uh, CDs or DVDs in those days. So, we, you know, we, we had our own sci-fi show, too, with the Great Space Coaster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely did. 
Jim, you've had an incredible career going all the way back to local TV in Pittsburgh, Sesame Street. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the Great Space Coaster. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to me ramble on. <laughs> <laughs> Kriana, what's happening on the show in the next couple of weeks? Um, stuff, I hear. I have no idea. Um, well, to, next week we get to talk with Scott Godsword for real, potentially, and David, about the Horror Guide to Massachusetts, which is more than just Salem, I hear. Ooh, I understand it is, yes. And in a completely not terrifying turn of events, on the 28th, Derek Belanger and friends drop by to discuss the anthology A Study in Terror, which involves Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Ooh. Sir Sarah. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Boston Comic-Con, Granite Con, Rhode Island Comic-Con, BooksandBooze.com, and ComicArthouse.com. Visit ComicArthouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight's outro music provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Check out more of their grooves on LawrenceMadeMeCry.com. Tonight's intro music provided by Rob Watts. Find more of his creations at RobWattsOnline.com. Don't? You know, if anybody could fill out an hour, it's me talking to Jim. We did it, goddammit. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Cass, thank you for sitting by and listening from the Revere Time Vortex. We are to the soundboard, Kriana, and the woman who the soundboard who was muted through the entire show. Thank you very much, ladies. I want to make like own, a tree and shed leaves. There you go. Our own Sir Sarah Lady Night. Sarah, thank you once again. I'll yell about Sky next week. Yes, you will. This is Dome saying, Jeannie, shared pain is less than shared joy increased. This will be all refute entropy. Good night, everyone. Have a good night. I know.